Uh, it was funny to me, if you were here last week or watched online, Paul Maffin uh, preached the sermon. He gave an illustration on eyesight and talking about his own cataract surgery. And I was laughing because I've got my own little journey of eyesight. Uh, you know, for 35 years, y'all, uh, I, I saw perfectly fine, or at least I thought I did. I never wore glasses or contacts. I never really went to the optometrist for the majority of my life. Then I married one. And so as it goes, you know, I marry an optometrist, so I'm, I'm on the hook, right? I better have good eyesight. I better be a good, you know, ambassador for my wife and her practice. Well, still, for most of our marriage, I just, I didn't go see her as a patient. She'd recommend it, and I'd say, you know, no, I'm fine. I can see just fine. Well, one night I was watching football, and I couldn't make out the scores scrolling on the bottom of the screen, and that did it. That was, that was it for me. I had to go get my eyes examined, so I went to see Jennifer, and y'all, maybe three minutes into the exam, she said, Kyle, you really shouldn't be driving. <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't see as well as I thought I did, because I didn't really ever know the difference, until I got these babies right here. The, when these glasses came in, y'all, the first night I had them, sitting at the dinner table, I did this the entire time at dinner. <laughs> I, couldn't get o- I couldn't get over the difference. I could see. Really, for the first time in my life, I was seeing clearly. Um, but y'all, I recognized, too, my, my issue was an issue of degree. I could see okay. I just needed to see a little better. In John chapter 9, this story we're going to read today, we're going to read about a man who was born blind. His problem was not an issue of degree. This was a man who needed total transformation, a man who had never seen anything at all. He had spent his entire life in the dark. And not, spoiler by the way, not only does Jesus heal the man's blindness, but in the process, Jesus opens the eyes of his own disciples. And hopefully he'll open our eyes today to a deeper understanding of his own grace and glory. Now y'all, I say this a lot about the Bible, but I say it because it's true. And it's true every week when we gather and study it. Uh, This passage, this scripture, has the power to change our lives today. I mean that every week. I certainly mean it again today, and I hope we see how as we go. We're in John chapter 9. We're going to look at the first seven verses of this chapter. As John tells this, gives us this account, he says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to the man's eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Jesus sees a man blind from birth, John tells us. Now, Jesus sees the man, but of course the man cannot see Jesus. 
In fact, this man has never seen anything. And as a result, he can't work, he can't provide for himself. We'll find out next week, later in this chapter, that this man can't do anything, really, except sit and beg for money. That's what he's been relegated to because of his disability. But Jesus sees him. Now, the disciples see him too, of course, but they see him differently than Jesus does. And we see that in their question. You notice the question they ask. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, that may sound like an insulting question, but to the disciples, it was a very natural question. Y'all, most people in the ancient ancient world um, viewed suffering this way. And still today, a lot of people view suffering just like this. If something bad happens to you, it must be that you deserved it. Somebody did something wrong, probably you, and that's why you're going through this hard thing. And in these days, at this time, many people believed that babies in the womb could commit sins and therefore be punished for sins in the womb. And so the connection seemed clear to the disciples. Somebody obviously sinned to cause this man's blindness. And because he was born blind, either he did it pre-birth, or his parents must have brought it about, one or the other. Jesus, which is it? That's their question. Now, why are the disciples even asking a question like this? I said it was a natural question for them to ask, and the truth is, y'all, for us, right here and now, these are the same kind of questions we tend to ask. I know that I do. All of us like to know and understand the causes and the reasons for things. We like to get to the bottom of things so that we can understand them. And certainly when something bad happens, we want to know why. When bad things happen around us, we, we typically look for a person to blame, don't we? Somebody's got to be to blame. Spend 15 seconds on Twitter, okay, if you don't believe me on this. We're constantly seeking someone to blame for pretty much everything at this point, okay? And part of the reason for that is just, you know, one reason is, of course, it just stokes my curiosity. I just like to know. But another deeper reason, at least for me, I like to know who's to blame because if it's somebody else's fault, it's not my fault. And I can feel better about myself. If somebody else caused a problem, at least it wasn't me, right? And, you know, I think it's, it's safe for us to assume that the disciples were kind of coming from this place, this platform, not so much curiosity but superiority, The reason for this man's blindness has to reside within him or his parents. Why? I like to explain the world that way. Because in that case, it makes me feel better about me. Things like this don't happen to good people like us. That was the prevailing thought among the disciples. Well, Jesus responds in in really a stunning way. And it should be stunning even now as we read it. Jesus says, look at verse Three again, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, on one hand, Jesus does answer their question. He says this man's blindness is not a result of any specific sin. But then Jesus answers a far deeper question that the disciples had not even thought to ask. Not what is the cause, but what is the purpose. Jesus declares the purpose. 
so that, he says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, y'all, we can safely assume that this was true for the disciples. I know it's true for a great many of us. There are misconceptions that we have as it relates to suffering that guide us in how we think and live. This is one of those scriptures that helps to tear those misconceptions down, though, ultimately for our good. What Jesus is saying here is meant to do damage in a good way to some of the false things that we may carry around in our minds and hearts. Let me give you two misconceptions that this scripture combats. One is the belief that if God loves me, and if I love God, bad things shouldn't happen to me. Y'all, the Bible, there's, there's an entire book of the Bible named Job that refutes that misconception. The whole Bible really speaks against it. Bad things happen to people who love God. The second misconception, though, is the belief that suffering surely can't have a purpose. Suffering can't really have a point because we all know that suffering is bad because we all try to avoid it as much as we can and cushion ourselves against it. The reason we do that is not just that it's painful, but so often it feels purposeless. And so pain and suffering can't serve any ultimate good purpose. We might look at something bad, and and often this is my own temptation, we look at something bad that's going on. And I think to myself, there's no good purpose for this. There's no way anything good could come from this. And y'all, it's especially true when that bad thing happens to us. Because then it's not just speculation looking from the outside in, it's personal. It touches us at the deepest level, right? But y'all, we we need to be clear that what Jesus is saying brings those misconceptions crumbling down. Jesus, when he encounters this man born blind and the question that his disciples bring to his feet here, Jesus does not take time to speculate on causes. Jesus doesn't shrug his shoulders like maybe you and I so often do when we see something we can't explain. No, Jesus sheds his grace. There is an ultimate purpose for this man's disability, and it is the display of God's glory. Jesus is declaring in that moment something his disciples do not fully comprehend, and I feel certain that we can't either. Not fully. That God's Glorious purposes come through suffering, not around it. And y'all, again, the Scripture speaks so wonderfully to this all throughout the Bible. God's glorious purposes come through suffering, not around it. And y'all, that may be for us, it, it, it's, it could be something as serious as disability or infectious disease or even death. It could just be the normal, common discouragements and and disappointments of life. But whatever it is, our suffering does not derail the purpose of God. It actually serves to fulfill it. Suffering does not derail God's purpose in your life. It actually serves to fulfill God's good purpose. I'm going to give us a couple of scriptures here that reflect this truth. Three different authors, by the way, James, Peter, and Paul, 
speak these to us, and we're going to go rapid fire, but take to heart what the Scripture says. James chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, In this, in your salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is, in, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And y'all, we, we really could go on all day with precious scriptures just like this. But here's the point. I, I, I always, anytime I talk about suffering or pain from the pulpit, there's always this ache in my heart that I'm going to speak in such a way as to be dismissive toward the very real pain that we encounter and that our brothers and sisters encounter around the world. And I'm terrified of dismissing it or diminishing it. Y'all, that, that is never something the Bible does. And by God's grace, I'll never do it either. We don't diminish pain. We're very realistic about pain. The truth is, y'all, suffering is painful. It's not a Christian thing to do to pretend like we're always fine and we whistle our way through life because I'm a Christian. I shouldn't feel those kinds of things. No. Suffering is painful. Bad things really are bad. Evil is evil. But nothing exists outside of the power and the providence of God. Nothing. And so when the disciples ask Jesus to explain the cause of this bad thing, Jesus doesn't say, well, things like this, they just happen. Nobody knows why. It's a good thing I showed up because I can fix it. No. He declares that this bad thing, and it is bad, yet it's fully within the scope of God's loving purpose. Not outside of God's purposes and in need of fixing, but within the good purposes of God so that God might display His great work in this man. Now, in this case today, the great work involves physical healing, and then we'll see next week this man comes to saving faith as a result of Jesus' healing. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see that sometimes suffering remains on a person, and God's great work is not in taking it away, it's not in the relief, but the great work is seen in the faithful endurance of the Christian. That was the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And then we see, we just saw from 2 Corinthians, 
the ultimate great work of God, beyond merely what we experience in this life, it's that we are, are being given an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul says our affliction is producing that glory. It's not glory that God gives us to make up for the bad stuff. The bad stuff helps produce the glory because that's how God is able to work. And so, y'all, whatever it is, whether God heals us, whether we are faithful in our suffering, and certainly when we all experience the glory beyond this life, whether it's simple disappointments, disability, disease, even death, whatever it may be, everything exists under the purposeful and good hand of God. Everything. That may be for us a hard pill to swallow when we see people suffer, when we ourselves suffer. Because it's so hard. Again, we go back to that misconception. It's so hard for me to see how if God loves me, He would let anything bad happen to me. And if that's, if that's a struggle for us, and I suspect that it is, it's a problem for everybody. We all have to grapple with that. Then here's my hope. Not that you would take my word for it. And certainly not that you would just pretend your way into trusting God. Well, I know I don't feel it. I'm not sure I really believe it, but I'm a Christian, so I, you know, I've got to tough it out. Y'all, if we're, if we're doubting, if we're struggling with this great truth, I just want to point us to Jesus. As we do in all things, all the time. I want you to consider Jesus. Jesus is the one who spoke this word of divine purpose. Divine purpose in suffering, in hardship, in disability. It was the same Jesus who only months later would willingly endure the worst suffering anyone's ever known. It was Jesus Himself who did not spectate. He didn't comment. He walked through the very worst of suffering as one of us and for us. Y'all, Jesus, when He dies on the cross, as bad as that physical pain could have been, beyond our, our imagination, it was the far greater and deeper pain that He experienced, the pain of suffering the guilt and condemnation for sin, the pain of God's wrath being poured out upon Him for you and for me and the condemnation that we had deserved that Jesus in His sinlessness could never have earned for Himself. He took it for us no one has ever known a pain like that. And yet it's through His death and His resurrection that we're saved. It's because Jesus Christ suffered and suffered so deeply and traumatically the condemnation of sin. It's because of Him that we share the victory over sin and death. It's because Jesus willingly went to the cross, that now all of God's promises are ours. They belong to us. God has obligated Himself to us because we have trusted in His Son. All of God's promises are sure and certain. Everything that James and Peter and Paul just told us, everything Jesus has told us, is most assuredly ours forever. Because He suffered. Jesus doesn't commentate on this man's problem. Jesus enters in as a servant. And He obeys God to the point of death for us. 
And so, listen, if you trust in Jesus Christ, then what he says here in John 9 becomes immediately and exponentially true of us. Every single thing about your life, the good and the bad, is now a theater for God's great works to be displayed in you. Because you belong to him. Nothing is outside the range and the scope of his goodness and glory. The man in John 9 cannot see Jesus at this point, but Jesus sees him. And Jesus assures us of God's good purpose. Now notice that even as Jesus speaks this great big truth, he also brings it down to the very real present moment. You see that in verse 4? Jesus speaks with practical urgency. Yes, God has an important purpose here, but look what he says. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This may be a little confusing here. What Jesus is making reference to his own present, at that time, his present earthly ministry. It's daytime right now while I'm with you because I am the light of the world. I'm the one giving forth the light, the day. But night is coming when no one can work. Now, I think Jesus is making a comment there about his death. When he goes to the cross, darkness will fall, in a sense, and no one can work. The work will belong exclusively to him, the work of death, of suffering, of payment for sin. Okay? That's, that's the, the sense of present urgency that Jesus was operating within during this time. Now, of course, he's not speaking universally, in my opinion, because after his death, of course, he will rise again and then ascend to the Father and send the gift of the Holy Spirit upon all who believe so that now the church, we are his ambassadors in the world. We do the good works that God has prepared beforehand. We walk in them. The good work carries on through his spirit and his church. That becomes clear as we walk through the gospel of John. So we don't live in perpetual night now. But the point here is that Jesus's ministry was very brief, three years to the best of our counting, and therefore it was very urgent. His unique work is right here and right now. Yes, God has a purpose in this man's blindness. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm standing in this precise place at this moment. And we must work the works of God while it's day. Y'all, I, I would just say this as, a, as maybe an indirect application because we're not Jesus. But the heart of Jesus here is something we ought to own for ourselves. Because the truth is, our lives are brief. And God's work is still urgent and very much needed in a darkened world. And my hope for myself, for Harvest Church, for us, is that just like Jesus, we would with urgency and practicality and great love enter into God's good works for us while we have time. There's coming a day when we'll no longer have this opportunity that we have. And so that urgency is ours as well. Now, here's the miracle. We've been waiting on the miracle, right? Verse 6. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to the man's eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. 
So he went away and washed. He came back seeing. Now, y'all, it's not at all clear why Jesus did it that way. Jesus heals other blind people throughout the Gospels. He never did it this way again. Um, spitting on the ground, making a little mud, pasting that on the man's eyes. Why did he do that? There are theories on this. You can, you can Google search them and look them up. Maybe your study Bible has a theory on this. Uh, my favorite personal theory has always been that Jesus' spit, in some sense, represents his life. And, of course, the dust represents the man's life. God created man from the dust of the earth, Genesis. And that when Jesus' life interacts with the man's life and is applied to his eyes, there's, there's healing. Right? There's nothing in the Bible that actually tells us that, which is why I, I almost didn't even mention it. It's just kind of for fun. We should be careful with theories, y'all, and here's why. It may very well be true. That theory may have something to it. The problem is, if we put faith in the theory, then we might read into something the Bible doesn't actually tell us, and then we might start thinking, well, if somebody's blind, we need to put mud on their eyes because there's magic in the mud, right? As long as there's faith to believe it, that, that, that would miss the point of the whole story. Y'all, there's no magic in the mud, nor is there any magic in the pool of Siloam where Jesus told the man to go rinse his eyes. You don't need to get a plane ticket to Jerusalem to go find the pool to heal you. No, the point is that Jesus Christ is the healer. Regardless of how he chooses to do it, the healing is in him. He's the Son of God. And y'all, there's a little clue perhaps in here. The fact that John defines the word Siloam for us, why does he do that? He says it's translated sent. Commentators think that what John is really doing here, he's trying to keep the attention on Jesus, not so much on the mud or the pool, but on Jesus, because the prophecies of Jesus, if you think back to Isaiah, when God promises a Savior, it's a one he will send into the world. And having sent the Savior into the world, one of the key signs of his salvation is what? That he will give sight to the blind. And Jesus reiterates that when he reads the scroll in Luke chapter 4. This prophecy, this word, this promise is being fulfilled right here and now in me. I'm the one sent to save. I'm the one sent to open the eyes of the blind. And so, y'all, the point here is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's the one with both the power and the mercy to bring healing to this man. And so that's how the story goes. And I realized, even as I was preparing this message, I spent a lot of time talking about a lot of different things, but relatively little time talking about this man. And so, y'all, as we round the corner and close, I want us to do that. I want us to think about this man. Unless you know this disability firsthand, it's really impossible to imagine what it would be like to be him. And, y'all, as we, as we search through the scriptures here, and, and John 9 goes on, we'll see next week the rest of the story and how dramatically it all unfolds. But this man, we're never told his name. And so often in the scripture, we don't get names of these people. We don't get his backstory. We don't know the rest of his story. What we do know, what little we know, is that he had lived his entire life in blindness. And therefore, we know this man had never seen his own parents' faces or his siblings. He'd never seen his own face reflected in the water or in a mirror. This is a man you couldn't have ever told him that the sky is blue. He's never seen the sky or the color blue. 
He has no concept of anything that we might try to describe for him because he's lived his entire life in the dark. And so one day, as he sits in public and begs for money, he hears voices. And he hears what for him should have been, I'm sure, a very hurtful, condescending question. Who sinned? This man or his parents? That he would be born blind? Can you imagine how awful that would feel? And how awful it would be for this man in the culture that that surrounded him, for him to know that everybody who passed him day after day was thinking that same thing, even if they didn't say it out loud. And how awful it must have been for him, perhaps, to wonder that question himself. What did I do wrong? That this is my life. And yet then breaks through another voice, a different voice, kind and tender, wise and compassionate, Neither this man sinned, nor his parents. But this is so that the great works of God might be displayed in him. Now surely he'd never heard anything like that before. Not about him. Who was this person? Who, was, who, who's, who, who did this voice belong to? And then the same voice, the next moment, refers to himself as the light of the world. Nobody talks like that. Who is this guy? Then the man with the kind voice stoops down and touches his eyes and says, go and wash. This man who had lived his entire life in the dark rinses off that clay and there's light and color and faces. A whole world now. All that he ever imagined is now in front of him, clear as day. What kind of man can do something like that? Pastor Ray Ortland speaks of this story and says, the disciples viewed that man as a problem to be discussed. Jesus saw him as a person to be loved. And y'all, I hope we see in this story that God's love, God's love is more powerful and more personal than we can dare to imagine. Jesus proved it in how he lived. And Jesus certainly proved it in how he died. What greater expression of God's power to forgive sin and his love to even want to than the cross of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. And so my encouragement, my challenge, is that we would come to him today. Y'all, this man in John 9 did not initiate. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't call out to Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He certainly couldn't see him in that moment. But Jesus saw him. Jesus loved him. And the great works of God were displayed. Would we come to Jesus Christ today in trust? Perhaps you need God to do something great in in this very present moment. There's healing. 
that you're crying out for, for yourself or for someone you love. There's a great need, a great burden in your life. And your heart, your hope is, God, would you do your great work? Would it be displayed somehow in this scenario, in my life, in the life of someone I care about? God is doing his great work all the time, in every place, including right here. May we ask him for it. And may we ask him for that greatest work, that ultimate work that his son accomplished for us. Dying and rising again so that by faith we might be saved, forgiven, and granted life in his name. May we see and celebrate the great work of God right here and now being displayed in us. Father, I'm praying and I'm asking for myself, so much more I pray for a Harvest Church, for those watching online right now, and for those who are present in this room, for those who are healthy and sick, Lord, for those who are rejoicing and those who are weeping, for those, Lord, who are walking through disability, perhaps, and we understand because of what we experience or what we see in our own children or our grandchildren, we know what it is to wonder what your purpose might be in this struggle, in this trial and pain. Father, would you speak with, with beauty and clarity and love, would you speak these words to our own hearts? Whatever it is, there is an ultimate display of the good works of God to be found here. Because you are good. And everything you do, Lord, belongs to the wise counsel of your will and the eternal celebration of your grace and glory. Even the hard stuff, and especially the hard stuff. Father, help us to see this, this morning that not only is there, is there a purpose in everything that occurs under your hand, but that you are good. And therefore, we can know, we can know that our God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, that all things will in the end bring us into conformity with the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, let us be a people who suffer well and let us be a people who love well in a world of suffering, that we are eager to bear burdens and weep with those who weep and serve and bless everywhere that we can because we are the ambassadors of Jesus Christ who was a friend of sinners and sufferers. Father, I do pray that this scripture would change our lives, open our eyes to this great, wonderful, deep, precious view of just how good you are in all things. And thank you, Father, 
that your great works are being displayed in and among us still. We love you and ask your mercy upon us in Christ's name. Amen.